Welcome to everybody. Praise be Jesus Christ. So it is my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Daniel Toma, a behavioral geneticist from Minnesota State University, Mankato. He is a full professor in the Department of Biology in Theology 302, New Evangelization and Apologetics. We've been reading his journal article for several years in, in the course, in, in the opening of the course, the journal from Logos, the Journal of Catholic Faith. And so Logos, uh, the article inside it that we've been using is a Dionysian Thomistic framework for the integration of science and Catholic tradition. And more recently, he's really expanded that work into a, a book, Vestiges of Eden, which, um, which really develops so many themes that a journal article doesn't leave enough space inside of. And I think we're going to get a lot more of that this afternoon. I want to talk about that book, The Vestiges of Eden, and some of the reviewers at the major centers for faith and reason. And so uh, Father Giulio Maspero, the professor of theology at the Pontifical University of Santa Croce and a member of the Pontifical Academy of Theology, talks about the book being an original book filling a gap in the market, advocating for the importance of a hierarchical view of beings. It shows how a materialistic approach has strong limitations that make for difficult interdisciplinary dialogue between different sciences. In our postmodern times, such difficulty poses a big problem to research, and because of that, it requires an answer. Vestiges of Eden, Image of Eternity, the fuller title, is clear coherent and, affecting, and effective in addressing these issues. From Father Andrew Pinsent, the research director at the Ian Ramsey Center for Science and Religion at the Faculty of Theology and Religion, University of Oxford, had this to say. Vestige of Eden shows that scientific and philosophical rigor does not have to entail bleak vision of the cosmos as nothing but atoms interacting in a void. In this book, Daniel Toma offers an inspiring alternative in which our union with divine grace can help draw our perception of creation into that of a heavenly liturgy. Matthew Levering of the James N. and Mary D. Perry Jr. Chair of Theology at Mundelein Seminary had this to say. Dan Toma, a geneticist by trade, is the kind of writer that few of us can ever hope to be clear I'm sorry, Dan Toma, geneticist by trade, is the kind of writer that few of us can ever hope to be. Clear, brilliant, and captivating. <coughs> Dr. Toma teased in class, you can pay someone to say anything, but that, that was genuine compliments from uh, <laughs> Professor Levering. <laughs> he says, I'm struck by the love and wonder with which he views things. And I admit I feel the same way when I read his stuff and listen to him talk. Whether small things such as a stream or unfathomably rich realities such as God the Trinity, he is a born questioner. The serenity and joy that attend his quest and the clarity and depth with which he explains the answer he has found make his book a rare delight. This book nourishes the soul in every way. So this is a picture of the book, Vestige of Eden, Image of Eternity, and subtitled Common Experience, The Hierarchy of Being in Modern Science. I want to say... Dr. Toma, thank you so much for putting a plug in the front and the acknowledgments to Christendom College as well. We appreciate it very deeply. Welcome. So with that said, the title of his talk today is listed on the screen, Deification of Matter, the Material Universe as a Liturgical Structure. Would you please welcome Dr. Daniel Toma. Well, 
Well, thank you for that introduction. I've known Dr. Sakanakis for uh, several years now. We've got to meet in Minnesota. <laughs> and um, I'd like to also thank Dr. Greg Townsend and the administration of Christendom College for, meeting, uh, for um, inviting me and, um, and the theology department as well. Uh, my wife is probably one of the biggest fans of your founder and original president, Warren Carroll. She's read just about every word he wrote. Um, I've read some of his works, but nothing to the degree that my, my wife has. And I just took a picture of his grave out there and sent it to her, and she really thought that was great. So um, again, thank you for having me. So uh, this talk has its genesis in, um, I guess I should keep close to this here. So this talk has its genesis in uh, a couple of things, and I'll see if I can touch on those. But I want to lead off with, with this quote. This is from a, a, um, one of the big Harvard evolutionary biologists, uh, Richard Lewontin. And um, focusing on the bold there, he says, he's speaking you know, on behalf of scientists and the scientific community. He says, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism, it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So he is, his candor, I think, is very refreshing on, the, on behalf of uh, you know, thinkers like him. And he's basically saying is you know, that science, the facts of science really don't compel one to, to hold to materialism. It's the philosophical structure. So this is really about a war of, of philosophical structures and not so much about the scientific data. And what I want to show in here, um, I'm going to try to show in here, is that you simply lift the data of science out of its materialistic framework. It's just a, a sleight of the mind, like a sleight of the hand in magic. You know, it's just a sleight of the hand, of mind. And put it in the Catholic framework that it is very explanatory. And, and so part of the problem you know, I want to address is I think we have lost our ballpark for explanation. We tend to agree with Lawant and even the best Catholics, we want to operate in his ballpark. So any of you are baseball fans like I was when I was growing up, the home team wins in its home ballpark, now it's away ballpark. And what our tendency as Catholics to do is to fight this fight in the, home ball, in the away ballpark of the enemy. We don't, stay, we don't know what our tradition is on this, and that's sort of the genesis of how it came about with me, because I'm a scientist by training, and about 25 years old I read from cover to cover, I, I was, my dad was a Southern Baptist, my mom was Roman Catholic, and I was raised through secular schools, and I started recovering my Catholic faith in college. I started reading on my own, and, and about 25 years old, I came across the collected works of John of the Cross. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, you know, what, what is this? You know, no one has ever presented Catholicism like this to me. And then someone tipped me off uh, to a fellow by the name of John Aaron Taro, who's a Spanish Dominican in the process of canonization. He wrote a, a tome on the uh, uh, mystical life called The um, Mystical Evolution. Evolution not having to do with biology in that sense, but meaning development is sort of a tour de force of the tradition of the church and the mystical theology. And, and he mentions in there, he says, he says uh, um, one of the big problems is we've forgotten our purpose as Christians. And, and, um, he's, and so um, he says, it, and um, excuse me, <clears throat> I've been talking all afternoon. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit. So, so it, was, it was with his work and, and John of the Cross that sort of really got me thinking about this. And so I started asking what was the, 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 our tradition that we missed, or is there a tradition that we've missed? That was, my, that was my first point of inquiry. 
And so is there something that the church has revealed? You know, we talk about the natural knowledge of God, the revealed knowledge of God. Is there a revealed knowledge of the, of the universe in, in all of creation? And so what is the revealed Christian tradition regarding the nature, structure, and order of the universe? And so that gets to the question, what is the purpose of the incarnation? And this is one of my favorite pictures, uh, St. Catherine's Monastery on Sinai. This is called Christ of the Two Faces. So on the left side, as you're looking at him, that's, that's the calm eye of the divinity. And the right side is the surprised eye of the humanity, this notion of you know, the, the, the divine coming in contact with, with, with uh, human nature. And so what is the purpose of the incarnation? In, in, as, um, as I've been informed here, most of you are a little bit more educated on that than a lot of places you go to, and that is deification or theosis. That is really, and Aaron Tarot talks about this. He says this is primarily what we've forgotten, particularly in the, in the Christian West, this notion of deification and theosis. And he talks about the Ephesians where St. Paul would say, um, have you forgotten about the Holy Spirit? And he says, you know, the Holy Spirit is who we attribute deification to, and he says sort of the same question. And he says, we've done the same thing. We've forgotten our tradition on this. And he said, this is really the, the central and core teaching of the uh, applied Christian tradition of the fathers, is this notion of deification. And so, just a couple quotes from scripture in the Catholic Catechism. He has bestowed on us precious and very great promises so that through them you may come to share in the divine nature. So St. Peter talks about sharing in the very nature of God and the Catholic Catechism sort of echoing Aaron Tarot, the ultimate end of the whole divine economy, what Aaron Tarot was saying about the fathers. The ultimate end of the whole divine economy is the entry of God's creatures into the perfect unity of the Blessed Trinity. And then Catechism 460, um, Dr. I mean, um, um, Monsignor Stuart Swetland, who's a good friend of mine, said that you know, he gets calls on his radio show about this all the time, asking if this is heresy. And he says, no, it's not. He says that, and it says, the word became flesh to make us partakers of the divine nature. For this is why the word became man and the son of God became the son of man, so that man, by entering into communion with the word and thus receiving divine sonship, might become the son of God. For the son of God became man so that we might become God. The only begotten son of God, wanting to make us shares in his divinity, assumed our nature so that he made man might make men gods. And so we're called to become God by participation. And so I think, and, and I think John of the Cross develops this in a more radical sense than just about anybody. You know, he says very striking statements. He says the property of love is to make the lover e equal to the object love. And then he says, just as God loves nothing outside himself, he bears no, love, no lower love for anything than the love he bears for himself. With God, to love the soul is to put her somehow in himself and make her his equal, which is a very you know, profound, striking statement. And this is one of my favorite icons. I'm an Eastern Catholic, by the way. And uh, I, uh, my wife was born and raised Eastern a Byzantine Catholic, and I switched rights after I got married. And so um, uh, this, is one, this is my photograph of the icon I'm downstairs. You know, you can see my thumbprint in the way and everything over there. But, but I like this particular, you can find other ones, but I like this particular one because the eyes are meeting real well. And I think if you reflect on this, I, I think this is really an encapsulation of deification in, in because, you know, there's the idea of this, you think about, you know, God becomes this, this baby and, and he's in his mother's arms and staring into her eyes and vice versa. And so he enters into the very guts, the very intimate aspect of, of the human family. You know, you can think in the home in Nazareth, you know, just as, you know, I have kids and they're small, you know, they crawl into bed with you and they play in, you know, between you and your wife, you know, jumping around and everything. And, and uh, you know, he probably did the same thing. And so, um, you know, and they, they sat around the evening together and so forth. And so he enters into the very, very heart of the human intimate relations. And, and I think the, the, the lesson that we learn is that is that's what he's calling to us in the Trinity. So John of the Cross goes on to develop. He says he's 
really calling us into the very generation of the Son to participate in the very generation of the Son from the Father and the, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from the, from the Father and the Son as well. And so, um, and this is not just confined to humans. One of the points I want to make, it's confined to the whole universe. The incarnation has impregnated the whole of matter. You know, Christ took spit and dirt and you know, did a miracle with, you know, the lowest thing, you know, spit and dirt. And he used that to convey divine power to cure people with. You know, he made the, the clay with his fingers and smeared it on the person's eyes. And so, so the whole of material reality is being called into, into the body of Christ. And so what is the, what is the, the, the um, reality of this now? Well, the reality, you know, where this is occurring is the church. The church is the new creation. Um, right now, it's, it's the baptized faithful and those who are in heaven, those who are in purgatory. And so... The, the Catholic Catechism again says, by the church is the body of Christ. By communicating the spirit, Christ mystically constitutes as his body those brothers of his who are called together from every nation. And so the church is the new creation. Again, the Catholic Catechism, that Jerusalem which is above and the world reconciled. So not just people, but the world reconciled. And then from Revelations, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So it's the whole of reality. And this is an um, icon of the, uh, of the um, heavenly Jerusalem. So again, the whole notion of the all of reality. And then from the East, from the Christian East, there's a really beautiful way of thinking about this that I think actually needs to be thought of a little bit more uh, in theology and by people. So this is the, um, again, St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai. This is the original icon that, that people can find of the um, transfiguration, so the divine rays going out from there. And several of the church fathers, Eastern fathers, have noted that, that I think in a very beautiful way that, that, that the Transfiguration, the light going out from Christ, the uncreated light of divinity going out from Christ. You know, God is above time, and so Christ is, is above time as well. He's in time and above time. And so this, this light of Tabor went out to all of creation before Christ, Christ's time and in the future. And all of beauty that you see in the universe comes from the light of Tabor. And it's the Holy, and the Holy Spirit sort of collects all these rays of the light of Tabor and draws them back into the church. And when that's complete, when all the beauty that has gone out from Christ is, is fully concentrated back in the church, and that would be the, the, um, the, the end of time. And I think this is represented, um, this is a, a very famous Eastern saint over, over on the right over here, Saint Sarah from Masarov. Um, he's from the Russian uh, northern forests, and this is his um, a famous um, account of his with uh, um, Molotivov, who is, a, uh, who is a Russian who came, layman who came and visited him for spiritual direction. And so, um, it's interesting, in, in, in the mysticism of the East, there has only ever been one Eastern mystic who has ever gotten stigmata. All Eastern mystics instead received the uncreated light of Christ at Mount Tabor, and they glow with that instead of the, instead of the stigmata. And so he glowed with this divine light when he wanted to let it out. And so the story is, you know, here's the picture of the Trinity and then the Holy Spirit, and this tiny little dove right here, you know. And, and uh, so he's in the forest, and Molotivov comes to him and says, well, what is the purpose of the Christian life? And he says, um, Sarah from Sorrow says, to acquire the Holy Spirit, in other words, divinization or theosis. And, and he says, well, how can I do that? And he says, you've already done that, partly. He says, you've already started that. You're already a child of God. You're already baptized. And then his eyes started glowing, and it, and it sort of opened up Molotivov, and he could see his own soul glowing, and the whole forest was transformed. You know, it was glowing with the divine light of Christ as well. So there's this, there's this deep notion, particularly in the Christian East, of that whole, the whole of reality is impregnated with this, with this divine light of Christ in, in Christ. And so... Um, you know, so he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
And so the, the, the purpose of reality is this divinization or theosis. And, and, it's in, and so I'm going to talk about how does this occur. And this is the sort of the core of, of the story I'm trying to structure here for Catholic, the Catholic structure of the universe. So again, we said the church is, the, is, is where this is occurring. And the heart of the church is the liturgy. So the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed and the font from which her power flows. And so the, the fathers of the church talked about three generic parts of the liturgy, union, purgation, and uh, union, illumination, and purgation. And for those of you familiar with the mystical theology, they're the three parts of, you know, three stages of mystical theology, the spiritual life. And so as Dionysius, I think, was the first historically to really synthesize all this together, this is Maximus the Confessor who developed this idea. And so as they relate, he says that the liturgy has three generic parts. Purgation, you walk into the liturgy like you had here at 1130. You hear the readings in, in, in the gospel, and that orders you away from your concerns of, of, of the day. It, it purges you from your concerns with material reality. The Nicene Creed occurs. That starts teaching you about the higher things of God through words of humans. And then the, the consecration. So there's Christ at Emmaus. You know, he walks with the disciples. He goes to Emmaus, the breaking of the bread. They're, they're enlightened, and then he disappears. They're illumined. And so the consecration is illumination. Then you progress to the Our Father. The Our Father, you start calling God your Father. You're his children. And then you receive Christ in the Eucharist. That's union. And so purgation, illumination, and union, the three parts of the liturgy. And so Saint, and not, not only in the East, but St. Thomas picks up on this. I think one of the more profound works of St. Thomas that people don't really read much is this commentary on the divine names of Dionysius. And so right in the area where, where, where Dionysius is talking about the structure of the liturgy and purgation, illumination, and union, St. Thomas starts commenting, and, and to, to cut this down somewhat, basically says the entire creatures is set by God for us in a certain order. And so I boldface that. And he says, first and principally in the removal of everything, so he starts with the top and he works his way down, St. Thomas, so the union. And he calls it end or remotion. His other, he relabels re these. He calls it remotion. And he says the second way is through excess, illumination. He ca calls illumination excess. And then the third way is purgation, but he calls that cause or order. So he gives these philosophical terms, fully acknowledging this, this structure of the universe, this liturgical structure, but he gives it philosophical terms. And then you go into his summas, like his summa contra gentiles, and he, st he starts on his part about angels, and he says angels are ordered according to remotion, excess, or and cause. And, and, and you totally miss that he's talking about liturgical structure because he uses this, this, these philosophical terms. And so creation is liturgical. Uh, and then and later on in his supplement to the Summa Theologica, he says specifically the church in reality is structured upon this as well. So I want to talk about, I want to focus on the material universe, but let's just look a little bit at, at the um, angelic universe, just hash it over real quickly just to, to flesh this out. Uh, so the, there are nine choirs of angels, and St. Thomas outlines them, and they are ordered according to purgation down below. The angels down below order men toward higher things. The angels in the middle illumine reality by, by you know, they're, they're directors of all of reality, and the highest angels focus principally on the praise and glory of God. The church is structured this way. The, the ordained act of the ministerial hierarchy, the bishops, you know, the fullness of the church is, is in them, so they represent union. The priests are the sacramental ministers. They bury the things of illumination, the sacraments. And the deacons, you know, they're, they're ministers of the word and the temporal needs of the church. So they draw people out of their concerns for, for material reality. The passive hierarchy, which we don't talk about much anymore. The monks, they live for God alone. The baptized faithful, they're illumined. And then the, and then the catechumenans, they are preparing for illumination. 
And so there's, no, there's this, this notion of this passive hierarchy, I think, is particularly fruitful to think about quite a bit. And if I have time at the end, I might come back to it, particularly the notion of monks. You know, monks are really ultimately are, are, the, are the representative or the goal for, for the layman to, to model his life after. And, um, um, but we'll, we'll, if I have time, I'd like to come back to that. But, so, matter is being deified. How? Matter is being deified by incorporation to the body of Christ. It's a liturgical structure and process, and that process has as its aim across the billion, or the 13.5, I guess is what they say now, billion years of the universe to produce humans. St. Thomas says this explicitly. The whole purpose of the universe is to produce a certain number of human beings. And human beings are composed of body and the soul, and they are the integration point of the material universe, and beyond that, in the order, by nature, they're the integration point of the material universe. In the order of grace, they are the integration of the material and spiritual creation as well. So the material hierarchy is comprised of men, who humans who represent union, animals, illumination, and plants, purgation. That's one way of looking at it. There's a couple ways, but humans are always union. So I'll stick with one way for brevity. Um, Ephraim the Syrian talks about this quite a bit in Eden. That's the title of my book, Vestige of Eden. So Ephraim the Syrian mentions that Eden was ordered this way. Eden was the locus of reality for the material universe to be ordered upon. And so Eden had as lower structures in, in scripture, you know, the, the trees that were good for fruit. And so they allow Adam to be purged away. He does not have to worry about material concerns. There's food for him. Then it says the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is illumination. And then finally, the tree of life is a type for the Eucharist. You know, in, in Revelation, it says to the victor, I will give the hidden manna, which is the Eucharist. And then, then it says a few sentences later, the victor, I will give the, free to the uh, fruit of the tree of life. So it's the same thing. And so Adam was created as the head of this material universe. And um, Adam fell. And Adam just did, you know, we, we have a, um, one of the things I want to emphasize, we kind of have a short-sighted view of Adam. We think that he was a moral man without sin, but he was really quite the exalted being. Um, you know, St. Thomas said he had perfect knowledge of material reality. He had perfect judgment of material reality. So he knew everything they were trying to do in science and far beyond. He could judge any aspect, all the optics and geometry and everything. He could tell you those trees in the Blue Ridge Mountains, exactly how tall they are and so to speak. And, and, um, and so when he fell, he fell hard. And so that's something I want to emphasize. You know, if, 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 you know, the earth is where he's supposed to be, you know, using the distance measure and the moon is an animal. When Adam fell, he brought humans down to about one foot above the level of the moon. And uh, so he fell hard and drug the material universe with him. And so this whole material universe was to be this giant structure for him to move, liturgical structure for him to move up to God and be able to contemplate God. And so it's hard for us because we fell, but there's a vestige of it left behind, and that's the title of my book, Vestige of Eden, and that vestige is this hierarchy of being, humans, animals, and plants. And so to answer this, to go into this a little bit more, to answer this, what is life? So I want to talk a little bit about living things to give you an idea of this, of this um, uh, hierarchical arrangement in nature. So what is life? So there are, um, contrasting it with, life is that which moves itself. We all have an intuitive notion of this. We're fascinated with things that move. There are two types of motion. There's external motion, which happens with rocks and billiard balls and stars and stuff like that. And so Newton's laws, a thing will you know, only alter unless it's acted on by an outside force. Then there's internal or self-motion called imminent motion, which is the motion of life. 
you're not just acted on by an outside force, you're your own volitional center. You get up in the morning and do things and all during the day. So in where I come, where a town where I work in, and there's a little park and there's a pond there, and this is acknowledged by modern people as well. It says, look for any sign. He's got a little nature trail. It says, look for any signs of movement in the water. Can you see any types of life? I just read a couple years ago, you know, there's all these rovers on Mars. What, what is NASA going to look for? And the scientists say, well, we're going to look for things that move themselves. So there's sort of an implicit, implicit recognition of this. So some definitions in modern biology text, life reproduces itself, life takes in nutrients and excretes waste, interacts with his environment and grows. They really never quite getting around to the general notion that life is that which just moves itself. So working our way up this, there's a, um, so the, the motion that life, this imminent motion, is moving towards intelligence. So it's moving toward humans, which are the endpoint of material creation, like, like St. Thomas said. Humans have intelligence, they have communion, they have love. But one of the things I want to emphasize is moving toward a, an intellect or knowledge. And so intelligence is a purely interior operation. We rely on exterior things to think, but we really it's an interior thought, it's an interior process. So let's move up the scale a little bit and talk about this material hierarchy. Inorganic minerals. So they are passively acted upon. A billiard ball moves because another billiard ball hits it. A stone moves because you're moving down a hill and you kick it with your foot. The water skips across the pond because you throw it and it hops across the pond and then the water consequently moves. Plants. Plants grow and reproduce. So they do something, they do something that's intrinsically different than, than um, non-living things. So matter is sort of folded in upon itself. It doesn't have any orientation for that which is outside of it. It's just this thing that sits there. So plants take inorganic substances, sunlight, nitrates, phosphates, sulfates. They draw them into themselves, and there's an interior, brief interiorization, and then they transform it to a seed and a fruit on the outside. So there is a brief moment of interiority in the plant. So they, are, they have a transit interior action, movement from the outside and then terminating outside. So moving up this, so the way of looking at this is the, is the increasing levels of interiority of the action of the being. So it's a little bit different way it's scientists. Scientists look at things according to structure and function. We're looking at things in terms of the, the general action of this type of being, you know, the, this, um, uh, how much it moves itself, so to speak. So the next one is animals. So animals have sensory knowledge. So sensory knowledge is a little bit different than what a plant does because an animal takes in that which is outside and it terminates the sensory knowledge in a form of internal uh, action called a memory. So the sensory knowledge is, is the, the action is finally terminated as a memory in sense. So that's why the dog remembers you when you come home because it remembers all your sensory aspects and you come home and it wags its tail if you're nice to it. Its knowledge is utilitarian. A dog doesn't know you and your family as humans. It knows you and your mom and your dad or your wife or whatever as this locus of pleasure or pain to a greater or lesser degree and that's all it knows you as. It wags its tail if you're more pleasurable and it growls at you if you're more painful towards it. So the sensory knowledge comes from the outside, but nevertheless it does terminate on the inside. So there is a greater concentration of this action interiorly. Humans. Humans have rational knowledge or an intellect. And their material for thinking comes from the outside. We have sense particulars like an animal we need, but we can move to the general and then we bring those on the inside and we think about those. Anybody who sits and thinks knows that the action of thought begins on the inside. We use things on the outside to think about, but the action begins on the inside. And it terminates to ideas and things that you don't necessarily find on the outside. A new image of yourself, 
ideas about God, ideas about immaterial things, ideas about we could even come up with things that like, you know, a unicorn or a six-legged horse or something that don't, we could come up with things that we don't find on the outside. And so there's internal self-reflection terminating at the idea of self. So it's that next level of concentration. We're dependent on the particulars and we move to the general. We're the lowest of all intellectual creatures. We're the Homer Simpsons of the intellectual life. Um, we have nine levels of angels above that who are better and they're a heck of a lot better than we are. So moving beyond the material universe just to flesh this out. So an angel doesn't move from particulars to a general. It's given the general. It's given the notion of dog, if God wants us to know about dogs, it's given the notion of dog by God, and it knows every single dog that could possibly exist in a far better way than you would know him. And if it's given the notion of animal, and it knows every single animal that could ever exist or ever does exist or ever had exist in a far better way than you could ever know it. And so that's, in St. Thomas's, that's the proper way for an intellect to know. It has the idea, so it give, it's given an interior idea by God, and it knows all the particulars just by knowing that idea. You have some notion of that. St. Thomas says that the lower realities um, at their best mimic the higher realities at their least. And so when you study for a test and all of a sudden you get everything comes together and then everything that you study for is sort of re-illuminated, you have sort of a little window on angelic knowledge. Very, very little window. And so there's no dependency on the exterior for knowledge. And the, and the known idea is implanted by God and conclude to particulars. And then finally, God simply depends on animal, I mean, angels depend on God for their being. God knows himself. There's an identity of being and knowledge. Being equals knowledge. And so basically, God has one idea, his divine being, and he knows everything from it, and everything is caused from it. So our material hierarchy, men, animals, plants, and inorganic things. So everything below also draws everything, everything above draws everything from below. So plants have inorganic ions and so to speak in them. Animals have, um, um, animals have, in addition to sensory capabilities, they can grow and reproduce. And humans, like a plant, and humans can have, uh, in addition to having our rational knowledge, we can sense things like an animal and we can grow and reproduce. And so we have all the powers of everything below us. So we represent union in the material universe. And our intellects as well draw everything into themselves. So me holding this mouse is the Material, my material capability of grasping onto some, you know, becoming one with something material. My intellect, according to St. Thomas, and the deep notion of the Greeks, is, is a faculty to grasp the being of a thing. And so it becomes, it's that which grasps and understands, so to know something is literally become one with it. And so by that, we, we sort of draw, our knowledge draws in everything from material reality and, and integrates it into our mind. So, men represent union. Um, I change that, and I don't know why. Animals represent illumination, and plants represent purgation. I know I changed that, but it's off-center, so. So let's, um, let me see. Okay, i got about 20 minutes here based on when I start. So um, it's always a problem with this talk because I have to show you the structure, and I want to get to the science, but the science is totally incomprehensible what I'm talking about unless I go over the structure in detail. So those of you who are more scientifically inclined might realize that I've left, I talk about minerals, plants, animals, and humans, and I leave out a lot of things known by modern science. So the medieval classification, to start with, has these four areas, minerals, plants, animals, and humans, and it's done by that exterior versus degrees of interior, interiority. The modern one has 
scientists classify it by structure and functions. And there's a perfect compatibility between these. It's like classifying everybody as Americans versus the state you come from. So the medieval way is broader and more general. It's a more basic action of existing things, interiority and, and exteriority, imminence, the, the notion of imminence. And the modern way looks at structure and function. And so the modern uh, uh, scientists would classify things according to minerals, which would include stars and galaxies and atoms and electrons. The medievals use just the word minerals for it, as well as the elements and everything else, all non-living things. Then there's three, three domains. There's called archaea, which are a very primitive type of bacteria, eubacteria, and then eukarya, which is the higher order cells. And so archaebacteria as a kingdom, archaebacteria, which is a primitive type of bacteria, eubacteria are true bacteria, and then eukaryotic cells have animals, plants, fungi, and protista. So these are all the things known by modern knowledge. So how do they relate? Well, minerals are minerals, non-living things are non-living things. Same between our knowledge and medieval's knowledge. Archaebacteria are plants. They grow and reproduce. You know, that's what they do. Prokaryotes, they grow and reproduce. They're plants. Protista, the lowest type of eukaryotes, eukaryotic cells, they grow and reproduce. They're plants. Fungi, they grow and reproduce. They're plants. Plants are plants. This is a good... <laughs> and this is a very good distinction between what I'm talking about. So plants and fun... The medievals knew about fungi. They called them plants. Why do we break them apart in modern knowledge? Because the modern scientist says plants obtain nutrients by photosynthesis. Fungi obtain nutrients by chemosynthesis, by, by using... Um, I mean, by... Uh, 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 not chemosynthesis, but um, breakdown of, of things for energy. And so it's simply a different function, but they still both grow and reproduce. And so the broader category is how the medievals thought about it. Animals are animals. The big problem between us and the medievals, a really big problem, comes in this area. Modern scientists basically say that humans are animals and are really nothing. We're just by, by degree and not by kind. We're different. One more thing before I get into the succession in time. So people ask me, what about Genesis? So St. Thomas talks about there's two, times of two types of causations. This is a history of life, according to Encyclopedia Britannica. I've cited down there dutifully. And um, as you go up the level, you start from the simpler, and you go up bacteria, um, eukaryotic things, the more complex eukaryotic cells, and then plants, reptiles, dinosaurs, which are essentially birds, modern birds, and then mammals, and then humans. And so, you know, Genesis is written from the standpoint, like St. Thomas would say, intellectual causation. When intelligence, when it wants to do something, first conceives what it wants to do. So the intelligence begins with the finished product. Leonardo began with um, the Mona Lisa in his mind. And then the parts get assembled. So from the standpoint of intellectual causation, the whole is there first. And Genesis is written from the way God wanted reality ultimately. Let us make man in our own image. So the whole, it's written from the standpoint of, like St. Thomas says explicitly, it's written from the standpoint of intellectual causation. The material causation is left up to us to find. It's the assembling of parts. So just like a, you know, a, an architect um, uh, designs the house and then he gives the blueprints to the, to the carpenter and they put all the parts together. And so this is what's happening, you know, in, in over the history of the universe. We know God says, let us create man in our own image. We're an intelligence. God's an intelli God is intellect. And we know that this is the way we work with matter. We work with matter by assembling things by the smallest, you know, we, we concrete, then boards, then, you know, things for the house. And so 
we're created in the image of God, and so why not say that this is the way that God assembles things as well? I think it fits perfectly. You know, God assembles things by, by starting with the simpler and making his way toward the complex. So, so in the time remaining, I want to give you a little history of, of, of living things. Um, I want to sort of concentrate together some stuff and, and try to try to these three points. So the history of life. Life is developing over time, leading to intelligence, communion, and societies in order to ultimately lead to persons. So the whole material universe, like St. Thomas says, is leading toward persons. So how does this assembling of parts over time that we see in the fossil record and everything bear out? We start off with the lowest life of bacterial cell to have an interior, interiorization, to have the possibility of going interior, you have to have wall yourself off from something. So at its basic level, life is simply a wall with biochemicals on the inside. So it has the possibility, it's the lowest type of plant, according to the medievals, if they knew our modern knowledge. And so you have a wall for an interior process. Moving up the scale, so bacteria are what's called prokaryotes. If you look at them, they basically have biochemicals and they have this DNA right here. And so they have no breakdown on the inside of parts. And so the next level up is a eukaryotic cell. All their life forms have eukaryotic cells. They have a great amount of internalization and division, different types of parts. So a bacterial cell is a one-room flat. A, a eukaryotic cell is a mansion with many rooms. And so you can see there's things called mitochondria. Mitochondria are energy producers. There's things called ribosomes, the nucleus, where the, where the chromosomes are housed. So, again, you're seeing this physical increasing of interior compartmentalization reflecting this notion of, of an interior action. It's a physical reflection of that. Building on that, why do we have that? What's the advantage of a eukaryotic cell over a prokaryotic cell? Very simply, eukaryotes, everything that is multi, almost everything, there's a couple of small exceptions, everything that is truly multicellular and advanced are eukaryotes. And so life is being prepared for cooperation in communion. You know, we're ultimately looking at the Trinity here, that God is, before all else existed, there was God. So he modeled it upon himself. And so he's three persons in a community. So um, life is, is being ordered toward communion. These parts on the inside, going back to this, mitochondria. Mitochondria are prokaryote. They're bacterial structure. They're bacterial wall, bacterial chemicals inside the eukaryotic cell. So the theory, scientific theory, is, is at some point in history, these, these different uh, components inside the eukaryotic cell were, were smaller cells, and they somehow invaded the larger one. The larger one offered them protection. The smaller one, mitochondria, is an energy producer. And so they entered into this symbiotic relationship, so a, a, a relationship of, you know, a, a dynamic relationship together. The one became absorbed in the higher. But so life began, the higher cells began in, a, in an act of communion between two different types of cells. Going back to this prokaryote, prokaryote DNA is all one large, giant, circular chromosome. It simply doubles and gets passed on. How does a eukaryote reproduce like you and I? We get two parents, we have two sets of chromosomes that are fused together, one from one type of cell, in our case sperm, and then eggs. So life begins in communion. A communion, the higher cells begin in an act of communion. They fuse two types of chromosomes together to form something you know, the next generation. So at the very basic level of life, mimicking your parents in a very, very remote sense, life begins in an act of communion. As we process up, as we go up the level, 
The next one, uh, protists, these are single-celled eukaryotes. There's a whole bunch of different forms of them. That's Van Leeuwenhoek was the Dutch discoverer of these. He's called animacules, he called them. He drew pictures of them. Around uh, several hundred million years ago is the Ediacarian fauna. This is called Dickinsonian, this uh, particular thing. They were quite unlike, but they were multicellular, but quite unlike anything we have. Nowadays, they went extinct. Uh, primitive animals, the sponge, the um, jellyfish, and the flatworm. Animals were like this for many, many hundreds of millions or you know, hundreds of millions of years. And then around 580 to 540 million years ago, we had what's called the Cambrian explosion. All body plans of, of organisms that had existed since then, every single one of them arose in this concentrated time frame of about 40 million years, and a hundred different body plans arose, and there's been none, there's been no new body plan that has arisen on Earth since. Some have gone extinct. But um, so everything that we have nowadays in terms of general body plans arose then. So life all of a sudden started experimenting in diverse ways for what? I'm going to say they experimented in diverse ways for intelligence and communion and sociality. So we have animals that come out of this. One of the things that, one of the processes, if you look at this history of life up to the point I've talked about, is, is things have gone as you've gone from single-celled organisms to jellyfish to more advanced organisms is this process called um, uh, 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 symmetry. And so sponges have no symmetry. Bacterial cells have no symmetry. A jellyfish is a radial symmetrical organism. If you could cut it like a piece of pie and every piece of pie has the same organs and the same contents as the next piece of pie. So the sensory capabilities is arranged in a circle around it. So its rear end is the same as its front end. Kind of a bummer. And, but as life gets more complex, like us, we're split right down the middle, symmetrical halves, and all our senses are uh, pushed up here, and our visceral operations, our reproduction, our digestion, our excrement are pushed down here. Why? It makes things more efficient to know. We can know much more efficient. All our sensory things is right up front. Modern scientists will tell you that. It's not my data. Modern science will tell you that through many experiments. We can, our, our ability to sense our prey or to sense our enemies is right up front. The brain is the integration of all these sensory operations. And, and so life is being prepared over this history to know this is a platform now. This bilateral symmetrical organism is now a platform for a rational soul to know very efficiently. Modern scientists will tell you it's to survive. We can accommodate that. Um, from the uh, uh, many church fathers, uh, uh, Chrysostom and Damascene, several others said that the, the um, skins in Genesis, when God clothes us with garments of skin, that was um, uh, uh, the, the ability to allow us to survive more efficiently. We fell to the level of concerns about ourselves, our psychoses, our neuroses, our, our, you know, our acquisitions of whatever, you know, clothing, food, and everything. But we can say, yes, as Catholics, but we have a much higher way of looking at this also. Things are moving toward something higher. They're moving towards a platform for intelligence. Another thing they move towards in addition to intelligence. Animal societies, this is a, a very uh, a central aspect. Remember, we're moving toward the Trinity, a communion of, community of three persons. Insects, very comp insect societies really started exploding about 60 million years ago, maybe a little bit before that. Wolves, elephants, they're all societies. Chimps have, particularly behaviorally, have very integrated societies. E.O. Wilson, the big Harvard biologist, atheist, so the trend in animal evolution is toward animal societies. 
And he says, a non, and he, and more technically, he says, a non-centripetal attention structures of social groups with agreed-upon leader allows a deeper and wider radius of social communication. This actually gets into a whole other area I could talk about, but basically what he's saying is that animals are arranged in societies with a leader. They all recognize implicitly a leader, and this is the structure of our society. Primates, the, the hierarchy, in other words, primates exaggerate this uh, especially. They have a hierarchically arranged group with a central leader. We finally end up with this with humans. You know, you have intelligence, you know, the, the capacity for knowledge, a platform for knowledge has, a, has come up, risen in, in animals. The capacity for sociality has arisen in animals. And this is one of the more fascinating aspects. This is one of the most fascinating pieces of scientific data. This is by Michael Tomasello. Uh, he was at Yerkes Primatological down in uh, Emory, and he's a phenomenal experimenter in, um, uh, he does very controlled experiments between primates and humans. This, this is a beautiful piece of data from a Catholic standpoint because, you know, again, what are we? We are we're a group of people being drawn, deified into the communion, community of the Trinity. Trinity is, is three persons, one God, but it's a communion of three persons, right? Group dynamics, okay? Physical cognition over here on the right. Don't pay attention to the left one. Physical cognition B. At two years old, a two-year-old ape has the same capabilities as a two-year-old human in terms of cognition in all physical skills tested. Now look over to the left. A two-year-old ape is significantly less capable from us. As a matter of fact, it has no ability for what this is. This is social cognition. It's not me and you. It's me. It's the ability to correctly assess a group of people together. And so at two years old, at two and a half years old, a human infant is significantly above the best animal next to us. Three, those three stars are significance. In other words, it gets 50% of group dynamic tests correct at two and a half years old, and then it takes off like a rocket after that. No other organism has any capability like that. In other words, this is group dynamics, not me and you, but group dynamics. In other words, a two and a half year old infant is, is, is far and away better. There's no other organism that can compare with it. And so, this really shows us we're being drawn into an, we're being ordered toward a communal life, toward a group dynamic, a dynamic of persons. Okay, um, I'd like to get into this, but I really, um, yeah, I, um, how much more time do I got? Am I pretty much out or what? Five minutes? Okay. Um, Another trend is the division of the sexes. Um, this has become particularly announced behaviorally in human, mammals and then humans. So as you're going up, reproduction has gotten interior. So, um, you know, reptiles have an egg, birds have an egg. Mammals, everything is interiorized, mimicking this interior notion of intelligence. And so in the mammal, you have internal fertilization, gestation, nursing of the young, a huge asymmetric time devoted to the energy, uh, devoted to the rearing of the young. And so you have a real true, by the time you get into, into higher mammals like, like apes and then, and then to us, you have real female motherhood and real fatherhood that has developed. And so there's the female form, which is femininity, the female form, this female form of the human, it binds together by loving and it's interiority perfected. Previously I said that St. Thomas said that the universe is moving toward a number of men. I'll go beyond that and say the universe is being ordered toward one person in particular and that's Mary. She's interiority perfected. She is the temple for, for God. And so that's what the three and a half billion years of the evolution of the universe are moving toward is her, to produce the God-man. Then there's the male form. 
Human males have the highest, deepest capacity for cooperation in the biosphere. You know, might, uh, might for right. So the, the knights of the round table. So the idea is, you know, the, the female is sort of the core of the family and the male is the protector. I know this is politically incorrect, but I'm at a school where I won't get killed for saying this, you know. And um, there's been a lot of people come, this is what the, 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 the priesthood is. Priesthood, you know, there, there's a blessed sacrament is the interiority and the priesthood is the, is the male force around it protecting it. Um, somehow I lost this. This was a picture of the world. And so men form large radius groups such as religions, groups. I mean, most of the, you know, of our states and nations have been formed by men. And so this is, gets put together in form of a family, society. The true motherhood and true fatherhood are perfected in humans in, the, in, in its most basic sense in the family. This notion of the family is expanded into deified humanity in the church. And this finally, in the end, everything is integrated in Christ. So the whole process is being moved into Christ, into deified humanity. And so the whole process of the material universe and its structure and everything we found in science is, is showing us how these things are being moved toward intelligence, communion, socialization, and then finally personhood in, in human beings. And then this in terms of a group of persons like the Trinity. And so we're, we're drawn, into, uh, drawn into Christ in the end. And, here's, and so that the image of the turn vestige of Eden is the structure of uh, you know, Eden, what's left behind that we see out here after the fall, and the image of eternity is the church, the, the de deified humanity. Now, there's a bucket of water thrown all over you for you, but, but you know, so, thanks. <laughs>